Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, Timothy Baldridge will be talking with Ramsey Nasser. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. First, we have a couple of important dates related to Euroclosure 2017. Actually, they're the same date, April 21st. April 21st is when you need to get your talk submission in if you'd like to speak at Euroclosure. So that's just a few days away as I record this. So if you're dying to say something to the folks at Euroclosure, get your submission in. Euroclosure Opportunity Grant applications also need to be in by April 21st. For more information about Euroclosure, go to 2017, that's the digits, 2017.euroclosure.org. Our second announcement is that there's going to be a Closure Bridge event right here in my backyard in Northern Virginia on April 28th and 29th. In case you don't know, Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. And I can tell you from personal experience that Closure Bridge workshops are a lot of fun. So for more information, go to www.closurebridge.org events. Finally, the Closure Tree, I think I'm saying that right, 2017 Call for Speakers is open. Closure Tree is a one-day closure conference held in Tempere, Finland. We'll have a link in the show notes, and I apologize if I butchered that city name. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on to Timothy and Ramsey and episode 123 of the Cognicast. So uh, I'll start off. We'll, we'll get moving. Cool. Welcome, everyone. Today is March 24th, 2017, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Timothy Baldridge, and today it is my great pleasure to welcome Ramsey Nasser to the show. Thank you for being with us, Ramsey. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So uh, I asked uh, a little bit ago for you to come up with something that was an experience of art, either a good experience, a bad experience, just something that made you sit back and think that was art. Uh, what do you have for us today? Yeah, so right out of grad school, I <clears throat> had the fortune of attending an ACM conference that was being held at the High Museum of Art in, um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, I saw two pieces, two calders that I had, that it was the first time I'd ever seen a calder in, in person. And, and what is a calder? So calder was an American sculptor who, an illustrator who did a, a, a lot of work his like illustration and his sculpture kind of looks the same. They're these like colorful geometric abstract shapes that all sort of fit together in these really weird ways. Interesting. Yeah, and I've always I've always just loved them. But the first calder that I saw was out on their lawn, and it's this like large. It must have been like a story or a story and a half high, and the way it's built, as the wind was blowing, like most of his pieces, they're like mobiles. Because of the wind, it was just like kicking and spinning and like they looked completely different in person, uh, animated. 
awesome. and I, I absolutely loved it. But then I went inside and I saw another one of uh, one of his pieces that they had. But because it was inside and there was no wind, it was just dead and limp. Mm-hmm. And like the breeze from the AC would hit it sometimes and it would like, you know, shudder a little bit. And it made me really sad. If it, it was like looking at a caged animal, especially like <laughs> seeing the, like this like completely alive cousin of it uh, out on the lawn. So it was really amazing to see those pieces in person. And one made me very happy and the other made me quite sad. And that's interesting. <laughs> and those were, uh, it sounds like those were very close. So, so it was the, the contrast of you just saw the one and now you're looking at the other. Yeah, it was, it was within an hour. Like I saw... I think the only two two um, Calders that I'd ever seen in person, um, yeah, within an hour of each other, and I saw the first one. I'm like, oh, this is how what they're this is what they're meant to be. This is amazing. And then I saw the second one. I'm like, oh no, set <laughs> this little guy free. I just wanted to take him out on the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's great. Okay, so we uh, wanted to bring you on the show today. Uh, you've been fairly active in the in the closure community on a project called Arcadia for some time. In fact, I looked it up and I think your first talk was at Strange Loop 2014. And at that time it was it was Closure Unity. But uh, why don't you start off by telling us what, what exactly is Arcadia? Yeah, so Arcadia is the integration of the closure programming language, which I think many people who listen to this podcast will be familiar with and the Unity 3D game engine, which may be uh, less familiar to, to your audience. Uh, and Unity 3D is the industry standard game engine that's used in the industry. Uh, I mean, one of a few, but Unity has, has seen a lot of uptake by independent developers, people targeting mobile platforms. It's easier to use for a variety of reasons than a lot of the other uh, engines. And it has an ecosystem and a community around it and it's what I use as a as a game developer when I'm not doing like uh, language stuff. Uh, it's what I use to make games. So Arcadia integrates uh, Closure into Unity, uh, where Unity is normally scripted in C sharp, or they have this constructed JavaScript like language called Unity Script. That's also an option, but primarily it's scripted in C sharp. And and the goal of Arcadia is to introduce all everything that that Closure brings to game development. So live programming, functional programming, concurrency. All the stuff that's kind of hard to do in C Sharp, Arcadia's goal is to bring that into game development. Excellent. Excellent. So, so you said you, you do game development as well. I mean, guess what got you started in, in this area? In, in games? In game development in general, yeah. Yeah, so I, I studied, uh, my undergraduate was in, in computer science, and my focus was on graphics. So I'm sort of formally, that's, that's the... the that's what I've been the most formally trained in, is, is the sort of theoretical uh, computer graphics. And I'd kind of always wanted to make games, and that's, that's also why I, I chose that concentration in undergrad. But it wasn't until I, I, I went to grad school in New York, I went to the, um, the design and technology program at Parsons, which is an MFA program, it's a fine arts program, but there's a, a sort of informal games track there. I think that it's been formalized since I've graduated. But uh, I had incredible teachers who taught me game design and game development. And I was just became sort of immersed in the game design community at that school and, and in the city at large. And that, this was six years ago now, seven years ago, eight years ago. God, I'm, I'm, <laughs> 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 time, well, time flies. Yeah. 
that was my first sort of foray into that's how I got into games and I kind of haven't left. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I think a lot of programmers, at least I remember when I first started programming, it was, you know, oh, I'm going to do game design. And, <laughs> and you realize over time that, that that's really hard and it's a, it's a hard industry to get into and, and to stay in as well. It's, it's, it's really hard. And so it's, it informs all the rest of my practice. So even when I'm doing uh, programming language stuff, if I'm reading papers or, or working on compilers, that's always the constraint in my mind is like, okay, how would, how would I use this to make a game? Um, because the, the sort of technical and aesthetic pressures that you're under to make a game are, like you said, uniquely difficult. I think uh, Brandon Bloom, who's, who's a friend and a, and a you know, member of the Closure community, oh, yes. yeah, described game development as having to solve all, every hard problem in computer science 60 times a second. Exactly, yes. And that's, I just have taken that quote and like, it, I've no, not heard a better description of sort of what's on the table when you're about to get into games exactly so you know so let's, let's get back then a little bit to unity so we we have game engines that unity is one and and i guess it's interesting kind of you kind of put it in perspective for me i'm familiar with a few other engines uh unreal and and the like but really it seems like unity has started at the indie level and they've gotten more sophisticated as the time goes on whereas some other engines like unreal and stuff have kind of started at the high end you know well, Unreal has been around for forever, right? Um, yeah. But and they've kind of done the AAA titles, and they're slowly trying to work down towards the uh, the the indie. Yeah, it sounds like Unity has really worked itself into that niche market of yeah. powerful enough to make a, a good game, but easy enough for the indie developers. No, you're you're totally right, and there's a there's a couple of reasons that those different approaches sort of happened, um, but the main I think relevant to our conversation here, especially around Arcadia, uh, and for people who are into programming languages in general, the main difference between Unity and the rest is that Unity has sort of bet on a managed runtime mm. in a way that no one, I mean, the others just haven't. So C Sharp, C, you, uh, sorry, Unreal does not offer you a managed runtime. You have, I think at this point, um, there's a visual scripting language that may or may not be Turing complete, I forget. Uh, and then it's C++ plugins. That's my understanding. Right. Um, yeah, same. There, there was a, an Unreal script, was a, their own programming language that was available for a while. I believe that was garbage collected. I forget what its state is now. But Unity has been the mono virtual machine from day one. So you have a garbage collected uh, environment that you're writing code inside of. And, and that, I mean, that's what makes our, something like Arcadia even thinkable or even possible. But I think the presence of a garbage collector and the presence of, of just the modern features that a, that a managed VM gives you makes Unity as a platform more palatable to indies, among other features. But I think that's a major one. Excellent. Excellent. So before we move on a little bit, I mean, we're kind of digging into Unity here, but, but I wanted to cover one more topic because I know if anyone's ever dabbled in closure in gaming, they've they've hit this why use a pre-built engine why not just write your own right what's what's the your your response to someone saying something like that yeah i mean my response is no, go write your own engine like i'm, I'm all, all i'm all in favor of that uh the the trade-off is with using a, a pre-built engine you sort of exchange control over the full pipeline for convenience so mm -hmm. What's valuable to Arcadia developers, uh, what Unity gives us is it has two physics engines already integrated. Uh, mm -hmm. 
it has a whole rendering pipeline with the you know material and shader stack completely integrated. It has like uh, lighting libraries. If you're into doing like high-end uh, lighting in, in a 3D game, that's all built in. And none of this is stuff that you couldn't do on your own, certainly. And and historically, really, until the last decade and a half, if you wanted to make a game, you basically wrote an engine and and then built on top of that. So it wasn't super unusual. But it's a trade-off in terms of time, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, I, I think about it, it's, it, one way that I think about it is if, if, you know, if I want to make a game, that's one project. If I want to make a game engine, that's kind of another project. Right. In, in the same way that's, you know, uh, w- when an airline opens for business, the first thing they do is not manufacture airplanes. Right, they exactly. buy airplanes. <laughs> yes. And then their, their actual goal is something different. So I'm, but that said, I'm all for building sort of custom from the ground game engines, especially if you're targeting an environment like the browser, where it's a little bit, it's a little bit more tractable uh, in terms of like you know just the, the engineering that you have to do. So I'm in support of that, but that is what the trade-off is. Excellent, excellent. So Arcadia is is closure on top of Unity. What does that look like? I mean, so you said Unity is in C sharp. We have closure. How do those two things merge? Yeah, so one of my favorite questions that I got after an Arcadia talk, this was a little while ago, I'd given this whole like spiel and then someone in the audience asked like, oh, how did you get the like communication between the JVM and Unity to be so fast? It's like real time. And it's like, whoa, that is not what we're doing. Right. Um, it, there, there is a, yeah, there's a little known version of closure. It is one of the three official closures um, that does run on top of uh, the common language runtime. It's written in C sharp, and it's been you know th- there's a small team of contributors, but primarily a-, a man named David Miller has been maintaining this not not even fork of of closure, this other closure, mm-hmm. uh, largely on his own for the last you know four or five years, and and it was sort of discovering this version of closure. And then putting in the necessary hacks to make it run on top of Unity that made Arcadia possible. Um, so, so closure running inside of Unity is not main. It's not closure JVM. Mm-hmm. It, it is a very similar, uh, you know, designed to be compatible closure uh, that's called closure CLR that runs on top of the common language runtime. So it's it's a lot like the relationship between closure on the JVM and closure script. It's it's just a different platform. So a lot of things will be the same. A lot of things will be different. <laughs> It, it is. It is. It's. It's funny because the CLR and the JVM are so much more alike than JavaScript engines in the JVM. Yes. So, so the CLR, Closure CLR, and Closure JVM are actually very similar. You have real concurrency. You have, uh, you know, actual. You have threading. You, you have all, all the kind of stuff that you you'd expect in the JVM. So a lot of the stuff is basically the same. The difference, though, Closure presents this really interesting puzzle. I think, as a as a language agnostic, or, or you know, supposedly language agnostic, uh, or sorry, sorry, host agnostic language. In mm-hmm. the puzzle is that it's interopy, right? It's hosty, and Closure is powerful because you can invoke host forms. So pure Closure code will run without modification on the Closure CLR. In practice, though, almost all Closure code will do Java interop. And those types, those types, you know, necessarily don't exist for us. So it's this weird thing where we're totally compatible with the ecosystem, but I don't think I think the only library that I've seen run without modification has been Tools Analyzer, 
which is designed to be completely host agnostic. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so um, now I, I'm digging back into some things I've known and heard about Unity as well. It sounds like that, that Unity used to use a fairly old version of, of Mono, which was an open source, which is an open source port of the CLR. Is that still the case? I mean, is there any sort of challenges you had getting what Unity considered to be .NET with what the CLR considered to be .NET? Oh, yeah. That's, that's been the main uh, challenge. So the, the history of C Sharp and Mono and Unity are all intertwined in, in these weird ways. Um, and I don't want to derail the conversation by getting into that history, but, but ba basically Unity licensed a version of Mono in 2008. Hmm. The version of is, is Mono 2.6.5, uh, and that version... So Mono is open source, but it's GPL. Right. Um, or, or at the time, it was open source, but it's GPL, which made it unsuitable. That license was unsuitable for Unity because, it, you know, you couldn't... Unity's customers could not then turn around and ship that VM in their games because mm -hmm. their their games would have to be, would be subject GPL, to the GPL. Yeah. So so Unity acquired a license to uh, Mono in two thousand and eight uh, that was not the GPL, uh, and it made it possible for them to like actually include it in their in their engine and and for people to sell it. But then a decade passed, <laughs> and uh, a lot changed technically with Mono. A lot changed legally with Mono and Xamarin, the company that makes Mono. Microsoft recently acquired them mm -hmm. uh, and relicensed the whole VM under the MIT license. So for about a decade, Unity was unable to update their version of Mono for legal reasons. Unfortunately, in the intervening decade, the VM has sort of changed enough that just jumping to the most recent version has proved to be uh, something of a challenge. So I, I do keep up to date with this, and uh, Unity does, has put out a few alpha builds of Unity running on the most recent Mono, which Arcadia I've tested, it does run on. The problem, though, is the garbage collector. And Clojure kind of, to do high-performance functional programming, it depends on a very modern, a very good garbage collector. Yes. The garbage collector that is in the version of Mono that's in Unity is the Boehm garbage collector. Oh. So it does. It's it's conservative. It doesn't really know what it's collecting. There's all kinds of optimizations that it just can't do. So it's not great. But it's also not a moving garbage collector. And Unity apparently makes deep assumptions that their GC is non-moving. So updating to the the garbage collector in the the most recent versions of Mono, which is moving, has proved to be a challenge. And it's looking like Unity when they do update to a modern version of Mono, they might keep the old garbage collector. So we're not going to see all the benefits that we were hoping. But all of this is sort of up in the air and something we're keeping a very close eye on because getting closure to run on an old VM has been a, a considerable challenge for us. And that's part of sort of, I think, what we want to talk about later, which is the um, what brought me to begin writing a new compiler for closure. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that in, in a second then. So. So let's look at then, if, if I'm going to write something in Arcadia, what, what does the interop layer look like then for me? Because it sounds like I, I could I could just write some closure code that executes just like C-sharp code, and it's just calling host interop on every single line. Something tells me you have a little bit more than that to offer users. We do, yeah, we do. Uh, and in, in early days, that's, that's basically what it was. <laughs> 
But the, the, the main thing we focused on has been the live programming experience, which in Unity is pretty absent uh, compared to what Clojure can do. So we sort of intentionally don't want, did not want to get too opinionated with Arcadia. Uh, Arcadia is meant to be a, a sort of foundation layer, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. for people to build their own abstractions on top of. So Arcadia has a, a package manager built in that can pull from the closure uh, from Clojars, with the hope that you know people who build higher level abstractions will uh, those will just be libraries. So we're trying to be really sort of mindful about that, and people in the community do tend to build their own sort of stacks on top of Arcadia, which is very exciting to see. The few opinionated things we do though is Unity Unity's semantics beyond C sharp uh, are an implementation of it's known as the Entity Component System. So Unity has, you know, objects in your game are called game objects, and game objects are containers for components. And Unity has ideas about how game objects and components relate. And in C Sharp, the way you you write a component is you write a C Sharp class mm. uh, that inherits from a particular Unity class, and then that that type that you created gets compiled, and Unity sees it and and you know shows up in the inspector. In, in the in Unity's uh, editor, and you can like attach it to game objects and stuff. So that's what Unity wants you to do. Early versions of Arcadia tried to mirror that, and we had a hack of def type that would generate a Unity compatible component, but that proved to be very hard to make stable, and it kind of violated the Clojure's live coding story. Hmm. Generate types are very static, and sort of changing types in place is a little bit of a headache on yes. the CLR. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so we, we wanted to kind of go back to VARS and let, let Clojure do what it's good at. So that is the like opinion, the, the only opinion, the, the most opinionated part I'd say about of, of Arcadia is we've made it so that you can attach Clojure functions to particular Unity events on game objects. So you can say, okay, when this object collides with another object, invoke this VAR. Mm, interesting. Um, as opposed to basically creating, you know, emitting a class into memory that you know Unity then hooks into. So, so uh, if we back up real quick, I, I'm not sure that all our listeners are completely familiar with the NDE yeah. component model. If I got those that right. acronym in the right order, it, from my understanding, it's a, it's a type of situation where you have entities and they they have components or traits or something, if you will, and that you can then fire an event and say, this object collided with this other object. And it sounds like a little bit like a bus, perhaps, too. If I if two objects collide, you may uh, transfer damage from one object to another by having the one object send a damage message to the, the second object. Am I off here? Or what, what's No, no, that, that's, that's pretty close. Entity component systems are... They have an interesting history in the, in the games in, in industry because, uh, yeah... In the, the game development in the 90s was all really deep C++ object-oriented programming. Yes. And by the, early, by the early 2000s, it was observed that this was just intractable. Um, and so you start to see, around the time Unity starts to get built, this idea that deeply nested hierarchies are not a way to represent behavior in a game. So instead, the idea is your, your game is full of these, you know, classically they're called entities, Unity calls them game objects. But... They're, they don't really do anything on their own. They're just sort of identifiers or containers. They're only given behavior via the components that populate them. So an example of that is that there's no camera object in Unity that's special. There's a game object that happens to be named main camera and happens to have a camera component on it. Hmm. And then the idea is that you can mix and match components on, on game objects as, as you like. 
And then Unity will dispatch events to different components on game objects when it sort of uh, at the correct time. So during a collision, it'll it'll send a collision message to to all objects involved. And a message in this case, it's Unity just invoking a method. Right. Yeah. So that's the, that's the basic. That's a sketch of the semantics of Unity as as they sort of present themselves. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so so what Arcadia does is it allows us to instead of writing sort of full components that can handle multiple messages uh, and also maintain state, because components in Unity are just C-sharp classes, so you know, public mutable fields are actually idiomatic to maintain state. We, Ar Arcadia allows you to associate uh, functions or vars with particular Unity events. And then our state is handled as a separate sort of system where uh, you basically every game object uh, gets an atom that is usually tends to be a hash map or it could be whatever you want. And, uh, and, and you sort of can swap values into that atom. Excellent. And, and the, the last point I'll make is that when you associate vars with Unity events, because vars do have this late bound property to them by default, that's where our live coding story really begins to shine. You could sort of set up a bunch of objects that respond to different Unity events by invoking vars, and you can be changing the functions that those vars are associated with on the fly. And that's a level of live coding that is, I think, unique to Arcadia. That's not really something you can do in Unity. Yeah, yeah, that, that, is, that is pretty unique. So it sounds like you, you've kind of written, Arcadia provides a, a proxy, if you will, that goes between the vars and it, you, you, you create the type that will handle the events as a method call and then it dispatches to the, the vars themselves. It's exactly that. We, we um, I mean, it's, it's kind of like looking, seeing how the sausage is made, it's not pretty. We, uh, we generate internally one C-sharp type for every Unity message. Mm -hmm. We call those hooks. And they're built to do exactly what you described. They maintain an array of iPhones and uh, you can you can add and remove to that using our API, and and when they receive a message, they just run through the their array and invoke all their iPhones. Excellent. Okay, so you mentioned earlier then that there, there's Arcadia leans pretty heavy heavily on the garbage collector, and and uh, I mean that that's something that I think a lot of people don't think about in the JVM environment because the garbage collector is so good, but um, but immutable. Languages that use immutable collections really do tend to put a lot of pressure on the uh, the garbage collector. But how how have you seen that interact with a game engine like this? I mean, does it? My my initial thought would be you're going to run into problems with FPS hiccups, or you know you you're running smoothly and all of a sudden you had a GC cycle and your game freezes for a little bit. Is there are there any tricks you've used in that that area, or is it not really a problem? No, it is a problem. It, it's in. It's the kind of thing where we, when we look at the bytecode that the compiler generates and we look at benchmarks and performance graphs, like I get really nervous. <laughs> but then in practice, it's fine. I mean, it's just, I think we did, we did a recent, we've been profiling our startup time and, and we've been, if you have 3,000 defs in a namespace, it takes X amount of time. But in practice, that's just like not the case. So, so in, in practice, it tends to be okay. That said... The GC that we have is not generational and it's conservative. So most allocations will contribute to a collection. I mean, yeah, actually every allocation will contribute to a collection down the line. Uh, and they manifest exactly how you described. You'll see like a hiccup in your frame rate. And that's that's not great. And and a lot of C-sharp Unity programming 
is about trying to keep the allocations close to zero. And when you're doing functional programming, that's that's not actually possible. So you you try and minimize them as much as you can. Fortunately, a lot of Arcadia code tends to be interopy in a way that isn't really a cludge because you're like mostly reacting to mm-hmm. Unity events. And when a Unity event happens, you have access to Unity the game objects and components that are that are involved, and you're you know calling methods on those instances doesn't incur uh, any GC overhead, and that's a lot of what you're doing in the game is doing that. Uh, but any kind of more functional stuff that you're doing, yeah, it, it, it does it does contribute to a spike. And I would imagine I, I have no idea how Unity handles this, but I imagine that these events don't necessarily happen in parallel or while something else could be modifying the object. So it sounds like you could have a system where even though you are mutating an object underneath you, you don't really care because you're the only one currently looking at it. Mono is multi-threaded because it's, uh, it's a real, it's a true C-sharp VM. Right. Uh, Unity's API is decidedly single-threaded though. Mm-hmm. And, and this is another sort of vestige of the, the games industry where um, the, that's, that's not very uncommon to have a single-threaded game engine. Uh, it's only now re- really that graphics pipelines and game engines are becoming uh, more concurrent. But yeah, so modifying game objects, components, that's all, that's all happening on a single thread. So you don't really have any, any of the sort of concurrency worries that you would have sort of in a, in a more g- generic uh, VM environment, maybe. Excellent. Yeah, so, so yeah, that, that's sort of not really a, a, an issue. And we've experimented. Um, I've built games where the game logic just happens on another thread, hmm. and then the sort of main thread pulls that thread via an atom, for example, or, or pulls in pulls in uh, information from the from the game logic thread and updates the Unity scene. Uh, so there's a lot of flexibility with how you build things. Excellent. So I guess the next question then is is how how well is the scale? I mean, can we take it up to thousands of objects and and build? For, for lack of a better term, uh, can you build something real, or is this mostly for demos? <laughs> Not don't mean that condescendingly at all. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a very that's a very fair question. I mean, and a, a lot of this, I mean, it's exciting to me because a lot of these are open questions. There, there, there is the open question of like, what, what does functional game development mean at scale? There is the open question of what does functional development in a ten-year-old VM mean at scale? Yes. People have built and continue to build real things in Arcadia, which is really exciting to see. And that's, again, this like tension between you know, the reality of it, where the VMs is not great, the GC is not great, the compiler doesn't always generate the best bytecode. I'm not going to pretend that these aren't true, right? But then in practice, you can still build sizable games with it. So like, if, like, to, to answer your question about scaling to thousands of objects, um, if, you, if you have thousands of game objects, you're going to potentially start running into Unity limitations before mm-hmm. you run into GC limitations. Interesting. That said, the sort of like an overly functional style is probably not possible on the VM that we have. So an approach where the entire game is represented as immutable data and every frame you're running it through a functional pipeline that's generating you know immutable versions uh, uh, like immutable updates and then at the bottom of the frame you sort of use that new the new the new perspective of the world to like update your graphics that's going to be a little that's going to be hard to scale in arcadia 
Yeah. So we tend to not not lean in that direction. Yeah, and it's interesting to point out too. I mean, this is this is still an open question. I, I, one of my favorite bits from a game talk is is um, part of a three hour talk John Carmack gave uh-huh. at QuakeCon, I think it was, where he basically sat down and said, "This is my." Thought he had been doing a lot of Haskell programming, some right. Lisp and that sort of thing, and he said, "This is my thought on how functional programming could work in a high-performance game engine." And then basically talked about GCs for the next fifteen minutes and how you would have to bake the GC into the engine itself at a level that no engine does, you know? <laughs> right, and, right. And, and deal with page faults, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna abuse everything we know about processors to get this to yeah. work, you know, at a at a high frame rate. So it, it's yeah. not it's not really an easy easy thing. It, it's not it's not, but I will. So my feeling is that it's it's certainly not easy, but I feel like this is the fight to fight. Mm-hmm. And my graduate thesis was the sort of beginnings of an exploration into what more expressive, what a more expressive programming experience could look like. And that's led me in all kinds of directions into sort of cultural studies and cultural critiques. And it brought me to functional programming. And FP is the first sort of paradigm that I I feel starts to get me in a creative and aesthetic state in a way that nothing else really has. The, the sort of, the fear of doing permanent damage sort of disappears, right? The, the, the ability to experiment and sketch and try things out is just completely front-loaded because you have a REPL and immutable data. You're just able to just doodle. You yes. can just sort of throw, throw things around and try it out and that didn't work. Who cares? Like, you know, the, the world is fine. But then making it fast is a challenge, yeah. Yes. So, but... But but it, it feels like the, that's the that's a that's the challenge that for me at least is worth days months years of my finite life because it's <laughs> I feel like it's 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 there's a promise there that's that's unfulfilled and and underexplored. Absolutely. So on that subject, let's move on to an, another uh, project that you've been working on, and um, I'll make a note here of this. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we are in the final weeks of uh, March right now and Closure West is coming up and you're doing a talk at Closure West, but uh, this will yeah. come out afterwards. So uh, a- after that talk. So if you want to hear more about what Ramsey's about to talk about, you can look at the VODs from that, which should be up or the videos that should be on YouTube fairly quickly after the conference. But with that being said, you're working on something called magic and something else called mage. Uh, what is huh? this? Yeah. So to our earlier point about the, our, our garbage collector problems in Arcadia, you could sort of break them up into two categories. There is pressure from functional programming, which is, I mean, at this point, that's an irreducible problem, right? Sh- short of a new set of papers on new data structures that you know are more memory efficient than what we have in Clojure, that's not going anywhere. Another source of our garbage collector problems, though, is that our compiler does not always generate the best bytecode that it can. Hmm. And it, for a variety of reasons, will generate bytecode that needlessly boxes and needlessly allocates memory when no functional programming is happening. And the reason that happens is that the Clojure CLR compiler is a straight port of the Clojure JVM compiler. Mm-hmm which is how David Miller was able to maintain it single-handedly, right? He just basically would copy what the Closure JVM was doing and then patch up 
the differences between the platforms. And in, in many cases went quite a long way to like patch up the differences. But one of the, the, uh, the main way that the, the JVM and the CLR differ that affects us is that the CLR has value types. Mm. The CLR has real value types. And, and, and uh, what are value types for those that may not know? So for, for people who aren't, who don't stay up late reading uh, programming language theory? Yeah, like something like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that minority of humans. So a value type is a, uh, sometimes they're, they're thought of as primitive types, or, or they behave like primitive types, but there is a difference. Uh, a value type is basically a data that is allocated on the stack, as opposed to the heap, is a way to think of it. Mm-hmm. So when you have a complex object or a, a, a closure data structure, the actual object is allocated in memory, and then what is put on the stack for your function to manipulate is a reference to that object, um, uh, a pointer. The a value type, the whole thing actually resides in memory. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, the whole thing actually resides on the stack, mm-hmm. and 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 nothing is moved to the to the heap. And in in on the JVM, you have primitive types. When you're manipulating numbers, those numbers don't get allocated to the heap, right? If you just, if you have a function that adds five to an input, the number five is not heap allocated and garbage collected. It's just the number five. It's just right there in the stack. So the CLR has primitive types, but it also has, the the CLR has a, a fixed set of primitive types like the JVM does, but it also has an unbounded set of user definable value types. And the JVM does not have an equivalent of that. People talk about uh, there's some proposal, I think, to integrate them into Java at some point in the future. C Sharp has had them for a decade. Yeah. And, and they're a very important part of the language. They, they affect the way C Sharp interrupts with C. And what that means for us is whenever Closure CLR encounters a value type, an example of a value type in Unity is vector three, for example, which is a type that represents a three-dimensional vector, x, y, and z coordinate. Right. That gets heap allocated. Right. That, and that it ends up being a type to. with three separate components. So yeah, you have an allocation, and and then that has to sit somewhere and get garbage collected somewhere. Yes. Whereas what C sharp would do is is leave it on the stack, which mm. is the the sort of better thing to do. So. The, and I think for similar reasons, we've also seen needless boxing of numbers and, and, if, and, and some other things. There's an amount of GC pressure that we can't meaningfully affect directly, but then there's some stuff where the, the bytecode is just obviously suboptimal and, and can be improved on. Um, so that, that's the sort of beginning of this trajectory. Uh, the first thing that I did to address that is, oh, sorry, I'll add, I'll add one more constraint. Uh, the, also, getting Arcadia to run on restrictive platforms like iOS required sort of tighter control of our bytecode. There's certain kinds of, there's certain features of C-sharp that are not supported on all platforms. And we wanted a more, well, a better reasoned way to be able to like opt in and opt out of different features. Yeah, that's something we should mention and I forgot to write this down, but our listeners may not be aware that, you know, Unity does run not only on Windows, but on Mac, Linux as well, I think maybe. Oh yeah. Um, as well as PlayStation Four, Xbox, I think. If you know, you get the right licenses, and the and then the Android and iOS, and like almost everywhere. But obviously, on some of those platforms, they don't really let you just execute arbitrary code. <laughs> right. They do on Android though. Yes. So, <laughs> Arcadia has a live coding story on device on Android, which is 
incredibly exciting. So you can build an Arcadia app to your phone, uh, open a REPL if you want to, and then send send it closure code over Wi-Fi and have it update in place uh, and swap out logic. That's awesome. Yeah, and for like VR and AR applications or just mobile games, the alternative is a 45 to 60 second build and upload time, which of course resets the whole app. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's night and day as far as that's concerned. But yeah, so we, we in general, need more control over our bytecode. Uh, in particular, there is a GC problem. There's a sort of, we're trying to minimize heap allocations or really eliminate needless heap allocations. So my first, the first approach uh, was not to write a new compiler. It was a little bit more rational. We tried fixing the existing compiler. And frankly, I mean, Clojure is a gorgeous language that I love to work in. The Clojure CLR and the Clojure JVM compilers are just enormous object-oriented systems, right? With all the, um, the, the, the charms <laughs> of object-oriented programming. <laughs> and I spent months sort of poking at the compiler, fixing something in one place, watching it break in another place. I'm, of course, not doing this on my own. Uh, Tim's Gardner, who's the, the, my collaborator on Arcadia, uh, also took a bunch of whacks at the compiler. And it just, it just proved to be this, this really hard... In, it, I'm not going to reach for the word intractable, but it was just a very difficult and not a very fun process trying to hack new type semantics into an existing enormous compiler. Right. So the other approach, to begin answering your question, Mage is stands for the Morgan and Grand emitter. And Mage is, is a library that represents C-sharp bytecode as functional data and allows you to manipulate it as functional data, as vectors of hash maps, basically. And just at the last step, turn that into runnable code. Okay. And, and that was... Basically, while these sort of fruitless compiler hacks are going on, I was I was a I was a member at the uh, Brooklyn Studio, uh, the Kitchen Table Coder Studio, where David Nolan uh, is at, and and Tim's Gardner is still there. But Kovas Baguda, who's another closure hacker, was was also there, and he was building his Gamma library. Uh, and Gamma, he's given a strange loop talk about it. You should all should go check out the top. It's really wonderful. And it was through conversations with him that I, I saw a way to represent the target bytecode that we were interested in, the C-sharp bytecode, as functional data and manipulate it in a way that just sort of feels like regular closure programming. I, I guess it was uh, watching him build and use Gamma, which generates shaders, with, with a smoothness that I've never really seen anyone build and use a compiler that sort of inspired me to build Mage. And, and so Mage was the sort of first step towards maybe we can build our own compiler for Clojure. So it's an emitter, it, it generates bytecode, but it doesn't know or care about Clojure semantics. Uh, it's just a generic library that generates uh, C-sharp bytecode. The next step was uh, MAGIC, which stands for Morgan and Grand Iron Clojure. Morgan and Grand are the cross streets of where the Kitchen Table Coder Studio was. So they're just sort of encoded into the names of those libraries forever. And the Morgan and, Morgan and Grand Iron Closure is that the goal there is to build a closure compiler that can be a standalone compiler or a compiler library. It's written in Closure, it's, it's purely functional, and it's built on top of Mage. So Magic uses Mage to generate bytecode, but Magic encodes 
closure semantics and, and you know, we'll parse code and analyze code and, and generate uh, and then use mage to generate bytecode from that. Excellent. So, so let's say I, I, I read a compiler and uh, we're taking these, these uh, I have a closure method that adds two numbers. So it takes two objects and returns an object and it, you know, we're adding those two numbers together and we emit that as bytecode. Like, are there additional steps that these tools are doing that kind of, shall we say, uh, optimizes that code more? Or is it is it more I need to, if I do type hinting, it handles type hinting better? Or what's the, how do we get to, we're removing allocations from from this closure code? Yeah, so so let's let's take that example and actually go through the whole pipeline. So you, you, you type out a function, right, that takes A and B, and adds A and B. So it's just one, one form, just plus A, B. So the first thing that happens is that that code is read by the, by the reader. Uh, Magic uses the stock reader. Um, it's, it's fine. There's no reason to change it. Right. And we get persistent data out of that. We get S expressions. Those are passed to Tools Analyzer, which is Nicolo Mometa's library. Mm-hmm. And uh, that performs an analysis of the uh, S expressions with additional passes that I wrote for CLR-specific semantics. And what the uh, analyzer does is it produces very deeply ha- nested hash map that describes the semantics of the code that you wrote. So instead of just the symbol plus, it figures out that, oh, you actually meant the var, you meant to invoke the var closure.core slash plus. Right. And plus AB, it sees that, oh, A in this context is the local variable that is the first parameter to this method, so uh, to the function. So the analyzer gives you this very rich uh, perspective of what, not just what the code is, but what the code means. Right. And it's, it's also, so your S expressions are functional data, your, uh, your analysis is functional data. The, the analyzed forms get passed to magic, which then basically walks the tree and generates mage bytecode. Uh, and mage bytecode is just you know nested vectors, more hash maps representing C sharp bytecode, and then mage at the final step turns around and uh, turns them into runnable code in memory or, or on disk. The way the way allocations are kept down is the analyzer and the 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 compiler because it's written from scratch because it's written CLR first, it hangs on to as much type information as it can. It doesn't make an assumption that I feel the closure compiler makes, which is that you can kind of cast anything to an object and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So magic never does that unless it's unless it's sort of forced to. So just by hanging on to type information, frankly, uh, a lot of the allocations do disappear. That said, because this whole pipeline is functional, intervening on it is actually is pretty tractable. So you can either do passes over the generated bytecode to do optimizations on it if you wanted, because the, the bytecode is symbolic, right? It, it's not some in-memory representation of runnable code. It's just a nested vector. You can sort of use Clojure's standard library to manipulate that. Or you can, you can supply new functions that turn an, the result of a, a analysis, the analyzed hash map, into bytecode. You could sort of intervene on that and supply new logic with, uh, you know, what kind of bytecode to generate for what kind of analysis. So that's how we do intrinsic operations, for example. Mm, interesting. To the to the example that you to, that you bring up, what the what plus will actually expand to enclosure is numbers.add. Mm-hmm. 
closure.lang.numbers.add. And the fact that I know all this off the top of my head is just sort of maybe evidence of how, sort of how much time I spend in, in the weeds of this stuff. So uh, uh, that's a, for us, that's a type. That's just a C-sharp type with a static method mm-hmm. that the closure standard library has been sort of smart enough to expand to. So that way you're not actually like uh, dereferencing a var to do addition. You're just invoking a static method, which is, which is somewhat faster. So without any additional intervention, what magic will generate is the invocation of a static method in the bytecode. So, you know, you type plus AB, you get the bytecode equivalent of, okay, call numbers.add for AB. But we can intervene on that and we could say, okay, every time you see a static method and you're about to turn that into static method bytecode, if that static method is one of this set that we have intrinsic operations for, and if the types of the operands are correct, don't actually emit bytecode for a static method invocation, emit this like low-level intrinsic. Mm-hmm. And so that is not baked into magic. That's a sort of, uh, I've been calling them spells, just because uh, they're more general than optimizations, and I didn't really know what else to call them. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so this is a magic spell that basically swaps out the logic for turning what would otherwise be a static method invocation into an intrinsic operation. And that's something that you can opt into, you can opt out of. And this is what I mean by control over the bytecode. You can sort of, it's built in a way so that you can swap in and swap out uh, emission logic without really breaking things. And this is only possible given the fact that the whole thing is functional. Right, and what's interesting here too is that really what you're doing is, so, so, so for some of our listeners that, that may not be aware, that there is a, a, a pretty drastic difference in the implementation of how the JVM JIT works and the .NET JIT, and yes. unless things have changed drastically in five years since I've been doing C Sharp, but in in the JVM, as you're running code, as you bring in new classes, the, the JIT is constantly profiling and reprofiling your code as it sees the need, and we'll find places where it can inline this method or improve into this other place. So calling out into numbers add isn't so bad because the JIT will just inline and do exactly what you're talking about. Right. .NET is a much simpler model in which, for the most part, when it compiles a method, it's done. Which, yeah. as a C-sharp programmer, I love that because profiling was way easier. You compile it, you run it, you see how fast it is. You know, <laughs> on, the, right. on the JVM, it's like, well, if I include another class, this may get slower. I, I don't really know. You know? <laughs> um, no. but, but the net effect is that, in general, it runs faster. Yeah. Yes, yes, no. And, that's, and they're both called JITs which is uh, a little frustrating. Yes. <laughs> but the, um, the CLR JIT is specifically uh, a JIT to go from bytecode to machine code. And that happens exactly once for every method the first time it's invoked. Right. And, nev- and never again is my understanding. And that, that hasn't changed. And I don't really expect that to change. That's a deep, that's a late 90s like, design decision of like, C Sharp. That's, yeah. that, that's how this is going to work. Yeah, so what, what that means for us is we can't, we can't really afford to be sloppy with bytecode. Because right. whatever is in the bytecode is just going to run. And that's the, the JIT, you know, the one time that it does that sort of transformation, it will do some optimizations. I know it will inline very, very small methods, but there's no way it's inlining numbers.add. Uh, that is, that's just happening at right. runtime. Uh, so I, the flip side, though, is that uh, C, the CLR, or really the .NET framework, to, to, so my interpretation is that to compensate for that or to balance that, what you get is 
really incredible bytecode emission machinery. So I know in the Closure JVM, they use a they use a library, uh, ASM or ASM, I don't know how to pronounce it, an Unreal library for bytecode manipulation and generation. And and you really don't need that on the CLR. There's a, 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 a namespace that's built into the framework. It's system.reflection.emit. And Mage just, Mage, Mage just basically wraps that. Mage is a functional wrapper over system reflection emit. And so they give you the tools to generate the best bytecode you can, given that whatever you do generate, that's just what's going to run. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, and so so as you were saying, adding more passes, removing passes really does give you a lot of power because I remember you were talking about vector types and I, when I was doing some mono programming, oh wow, 10 years ago now or something like that, mono had the ability to say, hey, if we have, if you're adding two vectors together, we'll bottom out at SSE, which is a, a CPU instruction made to just add two vectors of numbers. Um, and so, right. yeah, you could easily detect that sort of thing as, as a lot of these backends do and, and further optimize the bytecode. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, for what it's worth, when you were programming in Mono 10 years ago, you were probably on the version that I'm currently <laughs> testing against Unity. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of on the same page there. Exactly, yeah. 2.6 sounds, uh, sounds really familiar for some reason. So. Yeah, it shouldn't, but yeah, it, it does. <laughs> So um, you mentioned earlier, too, something about LLVM. So how, how does that play into this, this sort of thing? Yeah, so, so the approach that Mage takes is a very generic one, right? The, the, the observation is that if you can arrive at a functional representation for the target that you're sort of interested in generating, then everything else just becomes functional programming. So, so Magic gets away with all kinds of tricks. We have the intrinsic optimization that I, I talked to you, that I mentioned. It's sort of represented as, there's just a hash map of C-sharp method pointers to vectors of symbolic bytecode. Oh, nice. And then that's it. Then whenever you want a new intrinsic, you just add a new entry to that hash map. And that's it, right? It's, there's no crazy logic that you have to like, you know, no hoops that you need to jump through. And, and you could all, do it all live in the REPL. And all of the, the best parts of magic are just the fact that it's functional. So if you can represent whatever target bytecode you're interested in functionally, my observation is that you can actually, you can make compiler writing feel like normal closure programming by just doing that. And that's, so Mage does that to MSIL, C-sharp bytecode. Uh, but another really interesting bytecode, they call it bitcode target, is LLVM. And LLVM has a very well-reasoned, very well-documented intermediate representation that there are libraries that, that can, you, you can use to generate it. And my hope, that this is a, a sort of project that I'm building in parallel uh, called Simba, with, the hope there is to, to build a functional representation of LLVM bitcode and make it so that you can generate machine code uh, in the same way that Mage and Magic generate uh, C-sharp bytecode. Interesting. So, so... I, I get the question about I've done some compiler work in the past, but I, I get I get the question at least once a month. Why don't we just go write closure on LLVM? There's a little more to it than that, right? Yes. Um, uh, you have a garbage collector. You have to do an, a type system and you know some sort of polymorphic dispatch of of, of some right. sort. So so what are your thoughts on that area? Yeah. No. And and when when I first got into closure, especially because I came to it from games, that was my question. Um, right. And. And I saw a lot of your your earlier work on you know closure metal and uh, uh, Mjolnir. Is that yeah. how it's pronounced? Close yeah. enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
and you're you're exactly right that the I mean having done compiler stuff on top of C sharp and seeing all the stuff that you just get for free like a type system yes like 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 a uh, bytecode emission machinery that will stitch up branches for you <laughs> a garbage collector I really I really think the GC is that's the thing that that's the sort of like where the fun stops when you're yes. like building stuff from scratch and and I've seen that in other on other uh, languages that I would otherwise be interested in. So, for example, Julia is a language that I'm super, super interested in. I think their approach to multiple dispatch is really unique and really great. I, I think their type system is really simple and more general than most type systems th that I've seen. I mean, not getting into the sort of verifiability or like provability of something like Haskell or ML. Right. But, but the thing about Julia is, you know, they built the whole thing from scratch and it, it generates really tight machine code for like functions. But if you want to do functional programming, you're going to run to the GC and their GC is, it's okay. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's this like best effort by a dozen of people over a couple of years compared to thousands of Microsoft programmers over almost two decades. And I actually remember getting really excited when Microsoft open sourced their C Sharp implementation because I could read the, the GC implementation. Like, oh my God, we could finally find out how the actual .NET GC works because it is actually, in some cases, faster than the mono GC. Mm -hmm. So I like naively go to their repo and I go to the GC folder and the file gc.c is 36,000 lines of code <laughs> of C. <laughs> And that's one of many files that make up the garbage collector. That's just the main one. That's fantastic. And it's just like, yeah, there's, just, there's no trick to it. It's just, if you really want a GC that's uh, incremental, generational, concurrent, and just factors in every paper from the last 20 years, that's just what it takes. And, and that's, I think, why closure on metal, that's the main challenge, I think, is that it's a, you, know, you really need a high-performance GC. There's a handful of them that exist. Reproducing that single-handedly is quite difficult. That said, something like Simba is exciting because it, it's, I guess the goal there is less a new implementation of Clojure, and it's more to use Clojure as a metaprogramming layer for machine code. Mm. So there are other projects that do this. There's a language called uh, Terra that uses Lua to metaprogram C, mm -hmm. and that gets used in like some machine learning contexts, I think. And... R Python is is similar, which I, uh, Pixie is is based on yeah, R Python. Yeah, it doesn't work with that. Yeah, yeah. So you so that is, yeah, you're using Python to meta program this like lower level representation. What I want with, out of something like Simba or like a you know a functional LLVM representation is I want to use Clojure, mm -hmm. which is my absolute favorite you know live programming like live coded language. I want to use Clojure to instrument and and uh, meta program my machine code. And, and by bottoming out an LLVM, you have, uh, your choices of backends are actually quite big. You can generate x86-64 machine code to run on my laptop, for example. You can generate ARM code to run on a mobile device. You can, you can generate GPU instructions to run on like massively parallel GPU hardware, mm -hmm. uh, all, all from the same bit code. Um, so that's kind of where I see that going more than a standalone implementation of Clojure. If, although that is still a closure CLR project because the libraries are, are, are just a little better there. Absolutely. Wow, I could I could keep talking for another hour about this, but unfortunately, I think <laughs> we're about at the end of uh, our time, so we'll, we'll let our uh, listeners go. But before that, 
Uh, I just wanted to ask you, anything on your mind that you can give our listeners and, and us uh, at Cognitech just as a piece of advice, uh, something that you would, would just like to tell us to take to mind? Yeah. Closure on the CLR exists. We're here. <laughs> so if you're writing a library, try and take cross-closure support seriously. Use the reader conditionals. Sort of push interop to the edges if you can. We would love to use like a lot of libraries, but a lot of them just sort of sprinkle Javaisms all over the place. So that would be my my one my one request. I, I won't go as far as to suggest that people sort of test on the CLR because that, that may be a lot to ask <laughs> uh, most closure programmers. But if if you 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 sort of you know mindful about your interop, and if you get PRs coming from us, you know just just expect that and merge them in maybe. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> All right, so I think we'll wrap it up for there. Uh, thank you, uh, Ramsey, for talking to us today. This has been great. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognacast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognacast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognacast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognacast or emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Today's guest was Ramsey Nasser, and Ramsey has the coolest Twitter handle. He is at Ra, that's at R-A on Twitter, obviously. Our host today was Timothy Baldridge, who was at Tim Baldridge on Twitter. That's at T-I-M-B-A-L-D. R-I-D-G-E. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.